Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, before Jody preaches, I have the privilege and honor of getting to read the scripture passage for this week. It's Acts 8, and we're going to finish off the chapter from last time. So that's going to be verses 24 through 40. See if I can get there. And this is God's word, and it's eternally true. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and went preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, The spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. Six or seven years ago, We set ourselves as musicians in this church to the work of setting the book of Psalms to music, and we got through the first 30 or so Psalms and recorded them and released them and lead sheets and all that. And we, here in the last few years, we've taken a bit of a break. Um, I don't know, got wore out or something. And then in the recent congregational meeting, our brother Bob Goddard had the nerve to ask if we were ever gonna get back to it. Well, Bob, I guess there's your answer. Isn't that wonderful? The psalm psalm this morning, during the offertory, was the fruit of our musicians and their labors, and we're very thankful for it. I love the song. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, Acts chapter 8, which we're continuing this morning, has two side-by-side amazing uh, accounts from the life and ministry of an evangelist in the early church named Philip. This is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the deacon, one of the seven men of good reputation, full of God's spirit, who the church appointed to the work of overseeing the daily distribution of food for the poor, particularly the widows in Jerusalem. That's back in chapter 6 of Acts. He's probably a Hellenistic Jew, which means he's raised, um, he speaks Greek, he's raised in um, probably outside of Judea in a Greek-speaking territory or land. And uh, so this is 
Acts, the book of Acts, is, uh, it's many things, but one of the things that it is is a steady succession of breaking down barriers and bringing people together who have formerly been divided. And one of the first divisions that's overcome is this division between Hellenists and Judean or Hebrews, the Hebrews, the, the native Judeans. And that happens early on in the book. They have some conflicts, but with the appointment of deacons, God, by his spirit, works them out. So our first encounter with this man, Philip, this deacon, was in Jerusalem. But now in this chapter, he's out and about in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. He first goes to Samaria, and that was the focus of the first part of this chapter we looked at last week. And Philip goes there, preaches the gospel, and it, it is received with joy, like a whole city comes to faith in Jesus, hearing the good news of the gospel. And he has this interesting encounter with a sorcerer named Simon. And now in this part of the chapter, we find Philip on a road to Gaza, where he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. And I guess that this is the, one of the two stories that's most palatable because it's the one that winds up in the children's story Bibles. I couldn't find Simon the magician in any of the ones at my house. And kids, you probably know this well, the, the, what we just read, the Ethiopian eunuch. But Philip left Jerusalem at the same time for the same reasons that a lot of the disciples left. We read about this at the beginning of this chapter. There was an intense persecution that came upon the church, spearheaded by a zealous Pharisee named Saul. In the next chapter, we're going to learn a lot about Saul, and he really becomes the, the focal point, the hero of the rest of the book of Acts. There's a dramatic conversion account of this archenemy of the church who becomes its greatest possible ever supporter and defender, promoter, very soon. Well, as a result of this persecution, the disciples are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, we read in verse 1 of chapter 8. And in verse 4, we see that what they, they didn't just twiddle their thumbs. They didn't go into hiding. They didn't get discouraged and give up. They all go about preaching the word. So God, Satan tries to stomp out the church, and it ends up just spreading it all the more. And this is amazing these early disciples of Jesus have a missionary mindset and persecution cannot discourage them or throw them off their game. We, brothers and sisters, need to be more like these early disciples of Jesus, scattering the seeds of God's word wherever he puts us. And he's put us here in Bloomington. God has scattered us throughout this town. We're in different neighborhoods, different schools, different companies, different social circles, different affinity groups, leagues, and, in order to, and God has put us there. Why? To spread the seed of his word and to water those seeds as we go where he has put us. Are we doing this work? In the elders meeting this week, we were discussing the common approach, the normal approach that we have towards religion, towards Christianity, and towards church. It's a consumeristic approach where we're here to receive good things and then to go home and live our lives. But this is very different than what we see lived out in the book of Acts. We see that these are missionaries. They're not consumers, they're missionaries. Bloomington is our mission field. We are its missionaries. God has sent us here, put us here to be missionaries to Bloomington. The early church had this mindset and we should too. Well, this is why Philip left Jerusalem originally to advance the kingdom of Christ elsewhere since he could no longer do it safely in Jerusalem without risking his life. And where does Philip go first? Well, Philip goes down to a city of Samaria and the whole place is dramatically transformed very quickly. They receive the good news of Jesus with joy and are baptized into his name. And this sorcerer Simon even has to go along with it. It's also convincing, and the, 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 there's a groundswell in a certain direction, and Simon gets swept up for a time in it, but he shows his true colors later. He's the exception, though. Seems the rest sincerely believe. They are baptized into the name of Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit, and the church flourishes there for a time under Philip's leadership and care. And this is why Philip leaves Jerusalem for Samaria. And now, at the beginning of this passage, we see him leaving Samaria for some other place. Why does Philip leave there? Well, he leaves 
as it says in verse 26, because an angel tells him to. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Get up. Reminds me of the angel coming to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, in a dream at night. He says, Get up, Joseph. Take the child and his mother to Egypt. I wonder if this happened in a dream at night. And it sounds like maybe he's lying down and is asleep. And the command is, get up and go. Where does the angel direct Philip to go? Well, not so much to a destination as to a route. He says, go to, the, go to a road. A, a road that's heading south from Jerusalem to a, a city called Gaza, which is on the Medi- near the Mediterranean coast in the south. It's a, it was a city founded many years before by the Philistines. This road to Gaza is, uh, Luke tells us in verse 26, is a desert road, which means it's probably not much traveled. Maybe it's very dry, desolate place. And I think this fact helps emphasize that this is a divine encounter. It's unlikely that you're going to meet somebody or somebody special. And it just highlights the fact that God is in this. God has ordained something amazing to happen here. Get up, Philip, says the angel. Head southbound down the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. That was his instruction. And that's a pretty weird command. I mean, here he is in the midst of all this action, all these people, all these conversions, all these needs that he's got to tend to and care. I mean, they need a shepherd. They need pastoring, as, as any people do. There's lots of fruit, lots of good labor to engage in, no shortage of needs. And God says, get up, leave it behind, and go down a road. He doesn't tell him what he's going to find there. He doesn't tell him why to go. He just tells him to go. Is this your orientation to the commands of God in your life? What do we tell our children? That obedience consists of doing things all the way, right away, with a happy heart. All the way, right away, with a happy heart. Right away. We see that in Philip. He gets up and he goes. What does Philip meet with on the road? Well, verses 27 and 28 tell us about this man that he meets there. There on a desert road to Gaza, riding in a chariot, and this is probably not the war-style chariot that we think of. Chariot has a range of meanings and likely, since he's seating and seated and he's reading, this is probably more like a covered wagon or carriage. Maybe it has an entourage. Maybe he has servants and a driver. I think that's likely given his position. Well, there on this road, up in this carriage, Philip encounters a man. So he's, God has sent him away from, from hundreds, maybe thousands of people to care for and to minister among, down a dirt road in the desert, to find a man. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. Why, why would God care so much about this man? Well, I think the details about, that we're given help us understand what's significant about this. First of all, we learn that he's Ethiopian, which means he's long, a long ways from home. Ethiopia, at the time, has, has, it's sort of moved south and east over the, over the years, but, so it, it occupied more of the country back in those days, what we know as the Sudan, the area south of Egypt. So he's a, he's a ways from home. He's got a trip ahead of him. Ethiopia, um, was, this means he's African. He's a Cushite, most likely, black-skinned Cushite. And the Ethiopian kingdom and people were pretty far afield from the normal experience of Israel's, um, just the people they mixed with. The Cushites don't feature highly in their experience, although they do pop up a few times in Scripture. One notable place is Zipporah, the wife of Moses. I guess he meets her in Egypt, which would make sense. And then the Queen of Sheba, who famously visits uh, King Solomon and seeks out his wisdom, is a Cushite, an Ethiopian woman. And here and there are little flickers of biblical prophecy in the Old Testament concerning this country. 
and that adds to the significance of this encounter. Zephaniah foretells that God would be worshipped by the Ethiopians, that they would bring offerings to him. And David the prophet writes in Psalm 68, in verse 29, he says, speaking to the Lord or of the Lord, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. And we know that Ethiopia, in the course of things, became the first or the second country in the world to formally adopt Christianity as its religion. To just say, Jesus Christ is our God, and we worship and serve him, and we rule our kingdom according to his laws. Isn't that amazing? Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. And so we know that Ethiopia was, in fact, uh, significant in the development and the progress of the gospel. Church tradition says that it was due to the influence of this eunuch who finds Christ and is headed back home and becomes an evangelist and a pastor of great significance in his country. I think it's likely, seems likely to me. So we learn that he's, first of all, an Ethiopian. Secondly, we learn he's a eunuch. So a eunuch is an intentionally castrated male. Probably so from youth, from a young age. He's a man who would, whose reproductive organs would have been amputated or mutilated to prevent him from developing normally as a man and marrying and conceiving children. And this would have had negative implications for his social existence, his place in society. This would have put him pretty low in the view of people, and it would have um, separated him from the normal experience of men. Pretty gruesome and dehumanizing practice, but at the time it was widespread and common, and it had a practical purpose. Castration was common practice in the East, particularly with slaves, and particularly of slaves of royal households. And this is because this seemed to them a way of, of, of decreasing risk by taking off of the table some of the normal motivations for intrigue, for, for treachery, for disloyalty. Like, for instance, the fact that these men have no children, so there's no interest in their own family dynasty that would inspire them to get involved in a, in a plot to overthrow the king. I mean, kings have to watch, out, watch their back. They have to watch their back. And the people that they allow close to them, they have to be able to trust them. And this was one way of just sort of taking some of the things out of the equation that normally lead to disloyalty and treachery. Still, it's very gruesome. Their physical deformity and the implications of it for their life, I mean, just you could spot a eunuch immediately. They didn't develop physically like a normal man. Their voice, since if they were, had experienced this from a young age, wouldn't have changed like men's voices change and get lower. The voices would have stayed higher. This is something that you find in the opera world up until like the 19th century. Find it in church history that choirs and the voices of men and the pure voices of boys are so valued and treasured that castration is a practice to preserve that pure tone of the voice. But it really does dehumanize and bar from the people from the normal experience of human life, from marriage, from family, from relationships that are normal and healthy. So it's undoubtedly a very lonely life. But at the same time, eunuchs often found themselves in high positions of trust and responsibility in the kingdom, as was the case with this man. So on the one hand, they're like nobodies, worth nothing. Nobody takes any real relational interest in them and, and makes fun of them. And on the other hand, they're put in these high places of, of position because they can be trusted more. So this is what happens with this man. He's a man of importance and responsibility in the Ethiopian government. Verse 27 says that he's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her treasure. 
So a very important position, important man. Candace is not a personal name, but it's like Pharaoh and Caesar. It's a name of, uh, of an office or a family line, a dynasty. This is, he serves the Candace of Ethiopia, who at the time was a queen. We learn also that he's a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is really amazing. Jews scattered, were scattered throughout the known world at this time. There had been several diasporas, scatterings of Jews through uh, con- conquerings of their land and taking people into captive, captivity. And so throughout the known world, Jews were living, they were living their lives, they were carrying on their faith traditions, they were worshiping in synagogues and keeping the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive. And surrounded them were all these Gentiles, sometimes took an interest in what they're doing, what they're talking about, how they're living their lives, what their beliefs are. And some of these Gentiles went so far as to convert to Judaism. It was not uncommon. And this was allowed in the, in the law. This was something that could happen. You could, as a Gentile, you could, you could become, you could convert to Judaism, you could receive in your flesh, if you were a man, the sign of circumcision, and you could become as good as any Jew. If you swore off your gods, you owned Yahweh as your God, and it's like you think of Ruth. I'm leaving my people, and Naomi, your God will be my God, and I will serve I'll go where you go. And, I'll, and, and she swears off the foreign idols and gods of her past and becomes a Jew, a real Jew. This is allowed for in the law. And so this, this is called in Scripture a proselyte, this man. That's, I think that's, there's different theories about who this man is and what his relationship to the God of, of the Jews is, but I believe that he's likely what Scripture calls a proselyte, some, a Gentile who has been incorporated into the Jewish community and is seen, more or less, as a Jew. However, he has a problem, an inescapable problem. He's a eunuch. And this presented some significant limitations on him, on his full participation in the worship of this God, Yahweh. By God's own decree, a eunuch was not allowed to enter his house. It says in Deuteronomy 23.1, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one. And this is one of a number of deformities and conditions that God says prevents even an Israelite, even one of his people from coming into his house into the temple and, and offering sacrifices there. It doesn't mean they were prevented from, prevent, from participation in other aspects of Jewish life and worship, like synagogues were not cut off from them. Um, fellowship, they weren't like sent out of the camp, but they were not allowed into the temple. Now this prohibition was put in place by God in the law for ceremonial purposes. You, can get, you, you all understand this already, really, because you know that the sacrifices could had to be without blemish. God didn't want a goat or a sheep that had spots or broken legs or these kinds of things. He wanted a whole, perfect, spotless lamb to point to the perfection of Jesus Christ because this sacrifice stood in his place as a symbol of his work. Similarly, this has a ceremonial purpose, this barring of deformed persons from the temple, to, to, to witness spirit, to a spiritual requirement of God among his people, that he requires wholeness on the part of his people. Wholeness, health on the part of his people. That seems harsh, doesn't it? This disenfranchisement of certain people with deformities and... and realities like this eunuch. But there's also a practical purpose, a merciful purpose among the people of God. Remember, this is a widespread practice in in the ancient world. God does not want it practiced among his people. And so he forbids it in his house as a way of communicating this, making this, uh, what would you call it, like this stigma, stigma, at the place where Israelites value the most, their sons and daughters who had this practice 
uh, in their bodies, this mutilation in their body, were not allowed to go, it creates quite a stigma and a strong and powerful prohibition against the practice among God's people. So it has at least that practical purpose too. So it's all the more amazing that this eunuch has traveled all the way up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to come to his holy city and to present himself there with God's people. I assume knowing that he couldn't come in. Nevertheless, this is where God has made his name to dwell. He wants to come and see with his eyes this holy city of this most high God. Perhaps too, and this is probably my favorite possibility thought about this man, perhaps too as a proselyte, this man knew that bound up with the promise of a Messiah, so he would have known about the promise of a Messiah, bound up with this promise is also a promise to men like him, to eunuchs, indicating that days were coming when God would accept them into his house, that this was not a forever barring, but there was coming a time when he would be accepted and better than accepted, honored there. It says in Isaiah 56, 3 to 5, I cried through this in the first service. I'll do my best not to. This is just very poignant. If you think about this man, Isaiah says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Don't say this, foreigner. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. How's that? There's a lot of cutting off that happens in God's word and it's, it's, it's intentional. And it speaks to a man like that very powerfully as a promise. It would be very compelling to a man in his condition and state. It's only three chapters later than the passage he's reading when Philip shows up at the chariot. So it's likely he does know. And perhaps this is why he takes such a special keen interest in the prophet Isaiah. Because this is from Isaiah. And it has, it's very bound up with the kingdom of Christ and the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment that he ushers in. This promise to the eunuchs. Well, Luke certainly knows about Isaiah's prophecy and he's including this account of the eunuch in the book of Acts to show that this prophecy is one of many that's finding its fulfillment in these days of Jesus and his rule on earth through his spirit. Acts is about God in Christ reconciling the, word to, the world to himself and about God systematically breaking down ceremonial and cultural barriers between people and nations in order to make a new people for himself from every tribe and nation of earth. This barring of the eunuchs from God's house is one of those barriers that's being torn down by the Spirit of God, and it's significant, especially to those like this man who desire to come near and be included and to worship the Lord. There is, now go with me here, don't, don't be scared, there is a new inclusiveness, a new equality being ushered in by Jesus in the gospel era. And it's profound. And it's hard to accept because it's so profound. It's not the inclusiveness and the equality that so-called liberal Christians want and think it is. It definitely still has boundaries. Like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and his law. But all these ceremonial boundaries that separate people that were established, many of them by God, and all the prejudicial boundaries that are established by our sin, God is knocking them down left and right throughout the book of Acts as the gospel advances out into the world with power. 
In Jesus Christ, we read in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Done. There is neither slave nor free. Wow. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The eunuch is about to hear that message proclaimed to him. That's amazing. He's on his way home from visiting Jerusalem. He's purchased a scroll. He stopped by. It's probably a very expensive item. This had to be handmade, the paper and all, handwritten, the book of Isaiah. You try that, and you'll know what you charge for it. <laughs> it's probably a very expensive item, very precious. He stopped by the temple bookstore and put down a lot of money to pick this thing up. He's traveling home, and as he travels, he's reading aloud from Isaiah and pondering over it, and he's confused by what he reads. He doesn't understand it. Now, we know that he's reading aloud because Philip overhears him as he comes to the chariot, and this is interesting, young people. This is what everybody did back in those days. Nobody read silently in their head. They all read aloud. That doesn't come for a few hundred years as a common practice, and even when it starts, other people are like, what? You read in your head? How do you even do that? Things that we take for granted. The passage that he's reading and he's, and he's pondering over, it perplexes him and he shows that he's had, I think, something of a dissatisfying experience at the holy city. He's going away with questions unanswered, things on his mind. His Messiah has come and he doesn't know it. How did he miss the apostles up in Jerusalem? Isn't that interesting to wonder? Somehow, that wasn't the moment that God had ordained for him. He wants him to go away disappointed, perplexed and thinking, and then he sends him Philip. This is the situation. This is the very moment that God decides that he is ordained to introduce Philip into the equation. The Holy Spirit says to Philip, he's traveling down this road, there's a chariot down the way, and he says, the Spirit whispers in his ear, go up, Philip, and join this chariot, this carriage. Philip runs to catch up. Again, immediate obedience on Philip's part, eager obedience. He comes alongside the chariot. He overhears the man reading. He recognizes the passage for what it is. Oh, I know that passage from Isaiah. He asks the eunuch if he understands what he's reading. You understand the prophet's words? And the eunuch replies, verse 31, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He's lost without a teacher. And unlike the rest of us, he's not too proud to admit it. He wants to understand. And if somebody can help him solve this riddle, he's eager to hear. So he invites Philip up into the chariot with him and to explain the scriptures. Now, the passage of scripture that God has led this man to, for an evangelist like Philip, this is like a 16-inch softball lobbed gently over the plate, ready to be hit out of the park. Isn't that amazing where God has led him? This is like the most evangelistic text in the Old Testament. If you want to point and talk about the details and the theological significance of Jesus and his work of atonement and what, it, what he went through for us, you could not pick a better passage. This is the suffering servant passage of Isaiah's uh, prophecy where there's this servant who is suffering and is giving his life for the sake to bearing the, the, the penalty due for others' sins and offenses on himself and those people whose sins and offenses are put on him are at the same time mocking him and despising him and turning away from him. That's what he's reading. The particular verses from that chapter, Isaiah 53, um, that, Philip, that the, uh, the eunuch is focused on as Philip approaches are the verses 7 and 8 
of Isaiah 53, and we find them in verses 32 to 33 of Acts 8. He, speaking of Jesus, he was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. Jesus did not defend himself against the false accusations, the judgments, the sentences that were pronounced against him. As an act of obedience to his Father, Jesus passively receives upon himself, meekly as a lamb, the judgment and sentence of wicked men. Verse 33. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Jesus did not receive the justice that was his due. It was, it was taken away unjustly from him. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Jesus has no physical descendants to tell his story, to write his memoir or his history. He was, as it were, removed from the earth in the prime of his life before his time. And that whole chapter, those are just the verses that Philip happens upon, but that whole chapter is just profoundly speaking of Jesus Christ. And the, the eunuch wants to know, who is Isaiah talking about? And he asks Philip, hey, do you know? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And this is when Philip has the incredible privilege. In verse 35, we see that Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the script, this scripture, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. What a beauty. Can you imagine being there, getting to listen in or getting to be Philip? What an opportunity to preach Jesus to a man so ripe to hear about him, so hungry to hear what Philip does is he puts into practice the, the interpretational preaching method of the apostles, which is to open up the Old Testament scriptures and to show how they were fulfilled and how they apply to Jesus and are fulfilled in him. And the apostles, and we, this is what they do whenever they're preaching, they just do that. And the apostles learned that from Jesus himself. In Luke 24, the, at the, just in that period between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus meets periodically with his disciples, first time on the road to Emmaus, and later when his, all his disciples are assembled in a room together. And both times he does this for them. He opens up the Old Testament scriptures and it shows how they speak of him. In verse 27 of Luke 24, it says of Jesus, who's talking to two disciples, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And then later, in the room to all the disciples, he says, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ through and through. So this is what Philip does for the eunuch. He opens up the scriptures and he shows how they apply to Jesus, how they speak of Jesus, or fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And it must have been a far-reaching sermon and taken some time because it covered the meaning and significance also of the act of baptism. Somehow he came to know what baptism meant. This was the sign that, God, that Jesus had added as a sign of admission into the, the number of his people, that it, was this, that it signified death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins and washing and all that it meant. He is so eager to be included, to be forgiven, to be joined to Jesus. I mean, you just feel, I think, the ache of this man to know the Lord. He's so eager. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, David. How great the sign wasn't still circumcision. What a blessing for this man. And he wants to be baptized. So they're going along the way. Look, Philip, there's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? I want in. 
Now, how does, how does uh, Philip respond? He says, verse 37, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Except neither of them probably said this. You see the brackets around the verse? That's the, the compilers of Scripture, the translators of this Scripture's way of, of, of telling us these, this verse here is not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. It seems to have been added later. And it does, the language of it and everything seems a little bit out of touch with the language around it. It's like, it seems clearly to have been added. Now, it's very biblical. It's consistent, I think, with what the early church believed was necessary as a valid profession of faith and grounds for being in, entering into the church. If you believe with all your heart, you may have Jesus. That is a very biblical message, and the church has always stood by it. But it probably isn't original, but probably the result of a scribe who's thinking, I'm feeling a little tension. He wants to shore up in the marginal notes something that uh, you know, he believes is important to remember or to point out to people who are late reading after him. And somehow, over the course of time, it gets added into the text itself. So I don't think we know really what Philip said, but we do know what Philip did. Verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch heard the good news of Jesus, and he believed. He heard the message that he could be fully included in the church, and he wanted eagerly to be baptized, and so he is. Then Philip is taken away again, moves on one more time by the guidance of the Spirit, except this time with the, uh, what did we call it in staff meeting? The, tel the teleporting method. <laughs> it does seem as if this, he's miraculously snatched away, just disappears and wakes up, appears someplace else by the Spirit of God. When they came up out of the water, verse 39, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him but went on his way rejoicing. No kidding. The gospel brings joy, people. It's good news. It's meant to bring us joy and to make us eternally and fully happy and satisfied and content and blessed. Is it making you happy? Look to Jesus. Remember his goodness. Meditate on the blessings of God. And rest in the good things that bring happiness and joy into life. Jesus answers the deepest needs. If you forget it, you're going to be unhappy. But if you think about it, meditate upon it, on your real need and his answer for them you'll remember all that you have to be happy about. Verse 40, But Philip found himself in Azotaz. Azotaz. I think this is Astaroth. Or, what is the word for that Philistine city? Ashdod, that's it. And he passed through there and kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So this is up the coastline. And this is where Philip seems to have put down some roots. And he raises a family here because later in chapter 21, we meet him one last time, way at the end of this book, and there he is with a couple of daughters in his household, still living in Caesarea. This account of the Ethiopian eunuch magnifies the mercy and kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus came for men like this. He came for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, the downtrodden. Jesus hung out with outcasts. He came for the sick, for the unhealthy, for the marginalized. He received their worship and their love. He did not despise the lowly, but associated with them. He was the friend of sinners. And so he has a lot of affection for men who are outcasts and downtrodden because 
He loves humility. And circumstances like this are not a guarantee for humility, but they are a help. Humility is most often found with people who are aware of what they lack, that they have some need. They're not fully satisfied in life. And this is one of the means God uses to work humility into us, proud, arrogant people that we are. So yeah, he was an important government official, but he was a eunuch, and therefore an offscouring of humanity, a social outcast, probably a slave to boot. And there is nothing enviable about his existence, and yet he mattered to God. People, individuals, matter to God. He made you. And he wants to be worshipped by you. And he has set his love on certain men and women and children in this world and has ordained that even though they're sinners and enemies of his, he will reconcile them to himself and make them worshipers of him and make them happy as he does it. This man mattered to God, and he sent Philip to him to be his minister and guide. He came to him in the person of Philip with a message that says, I'm your father, and I adopt you as my own. You're a part of my household, and I'm giving you a name better than with sons and daughters. You are included. Are you, am I, on the lookout for people like this eunuch? This is a man that's quite different than the rest. He's pretty low on the totem pole, easy to dismiss. Even though he's an important public official, he's not the kind of person that you hang out with or go to dinner parties with. He's probably not really part of the social scene. Are we on the lookout for people like this? Weirdos. We live in a town of weirdos, have you noticed? Is God at work in any of them? Do some of them belong to him and are waiting to hear it? Do we care about them? God is at work. I mean, this is an unlikely man for God to have chosen to be at work in. He doesn't feel like he's privileged or has any right to anything. And God shows, comes and shows up. Are we on the lookout for men and women in this town who are waiting, yearning to hear the hope of Jesus Christ and all that he has to offer them, who he is, what he's done. Nobody's nodding their head. They are. Now, you might not find them reading aloud a passage from Isaiah oh, look, <laughs> I know what I'm made for. I just heard a sermon about that. You have to get in there. You have to get to know them to figure it out. You have to observe something about them and, and give it a try. You have to risk something. Hey, you look depressed. Do you know why that is? Do you know why you're so down? There's an in. Anybody looking depressed around Bloomington? I don't want you to be sad. You look really sad. You want to talk about that? They probably would. And do you have answers for them? A lot of answers, more than you know. You just listen and you just think how God has answered your need, calmed your fears, forgiven your sins, dealt with your guilt on the cross and preach Jesus to them. I'm preaching to myself when I say this. We're the missionaries. We're the Phillips of this community or nobody is. 
Are we going to let Korea save the day by sending missionaries to Bloomington? They probably already have. Cyan? Cyan might know some of them. They're sending missionaries everywhere. We're the missionaries. We need to act like the missionaries to Bloomington. We need to love the people that we're around. And look for the people that God is saving and try to be used of God's Spirit to help them close with Jesus. Understand who He is and to accept Him into their life. It'll give them joy. It'll give you joy to be used of God that way. So let's love the people of this town. I think that's one good application from this account for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we think about it and ponder it the rest of this day and week, that you would imprint it deeply into our thinking, into our hearts, into our way of life, that we would be inspired to love people that we're around, that we would be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. We'd be looking for those who you are at work in, that we would want to be used of you to further that work, to lead them and guide them unto Jesus. I pray that we would take the opportunities that you put before us and not be afraid. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us as, you, as he filled your servant Philip and that this church would be a church of men and women, boys and girls who are just full to overflowing with love for Jesus and an eagerness to testify to him and to lead others to him in our schools, in, our, in where we work, in our community, on the street, at Walmart, wherever we are. Oh, Lord, put it in our hearts to love the people of this town and to preach the gospel wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.